Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Y'all, when we're having a national conversation about whether a 14-year-old can consent to a sexual relationship with a man in his 30s, you know things have gone terribly wrong. We discussed the situation with Roy Moore, President Trump's trip to Asia, and Republican efforts to cut taxes. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsu Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Before we get started on today's show, we want to give you a little bit of an update. We are furiously writing our book, Keep It Nuanced, that we're excited to work with uh, the Thomas Nelson Company on. And so, Sarah, anything you want to say about that other than click, 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 right, 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 right? I invoked Abigail Adams, and I just feel like that's a really good start. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> we also have been putting some bonus content up on Patreon. We started recording The Nuanced Life. We've put kind of our first drafts of that, our spinoff podcast, up in Patreon. We're taking it in a slightly different direction, thanks to the help and feedback of our community on Patreon. So if you want to be part of that, you can go over to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. And we are starting to book 2018 speaking engagements. We would love to be on the calendar at your college or university or organization 
information. And so if you would like to have Pantsuit Politics come to you, please just send me an email. It's beth at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. So today we are going to talk a little bit about Roy Moore and the president's trip to Asia. And then our main segment will be focused on tax cuts. Before we do, we want to acknowledge that the the northern border um, of Iraq and Iran experienced a terrible earthquake this week. Uh, 396 people died and over 7,000 people were injured. And it was particularly terrible because the main hospital in the town sustained part of the greatest impact and was severely damaged. So over 70,000 people need shelter after the earthquake. Lots of the homes in the area are constructed out of mud. And so obviously that means they're extremely vulnerable to earthquakes. And this seems to be um, part of an increase in earthquakes in that area. And Iran has seen a lot of earthquakes in its past because there are two tectonic plates, the Arabia and Eurasia plates, that clash right there. The Arabia plate is pushing north by a couple of centimeters every year, and it's actually pushing under the Eurasia plate. But in the northwest, these great slabs rub up against each other, which has resulted in a mountain range there because of all the compression and continues to create earthquakes. So we're very sorry that this happened. We're thinking about the people in that region. And it's a good reminder that, you know, natural disasters across the world have enormous impact. It's not just here in America. Okay. Speaking of disaster. Exactly. (laughs) Are we ready to talk about Roy Moore? I guess, you know, this broke right after we recorded our last episode, and I was sort of glad that we had already recorded, because at first I thought, what is there to say other than this is horrible, and he needs to drop out of the race? But apparently there's lots to say. But lucky for us, people had terrible reactions to it, so we could talk about that. I mean, okay, a couple (laughs) things. Let's just lay it out real simple. Four women... Over 30 sources confirming that he had a habitual problem with dating teenage girls when he was in his 30s. Also, which I don't feel like is getting enough play, is in the political e- Politico email this morning, they said that in a conversation with a Senate, a Republican senator, he confirmed on the phone that he dated teenage girls when he was in his 30s. So, like, this, if, if this shows to be true... It's true. Ugh. He also said to Sean Hannity that he had never dated a girl without her mother's permission. No, no. No, 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 friend. Okay. Mm. Let's start over. If you have to ask a parent's permission when you are in your 30s, you're doing it bad. No. No. Absolutely not. You know, I think that This is one of the grossest things that's happened over the past two years, and that's saying something. And I don't... There are a lot of things we could say about this, and a lot of things that have already been said about it. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, I keep seeing in conservative, not even conservative media, just people who follow conservative media talking about this, is the idea that liberal outrage, a phrase that I despise, over Roy Moore is hypocritical because of the support for Bill Clinton. And here's what I I don't want to, I don't want to debate that because I mean, come on. What I want to say about it is this. I wonder why we need 
in every one of these scenarios to have this sense of, no, 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 but you. Mm. To me, what is happening with Roy Moore is so clear cut that we can talk about it in isolation because on its own, this is an enormous problem. And I don't see why there is a need to connect the dots somewhere else with this one. So here's what I think fuels this. And I'm glad you brought that up because I've been wanting to talk about it for a while since our, the, the Harvey Weinstein story broke. Okay. So I think that conservative, I don't want, I guess conservative media or let's say the conservative base. Okay. I think the conservative base is right in feeling outrage at and and sort of a confirmation in I knew they were hypocrites all the time in the Harvey Weinstein story because of the undercurrent constantly in the liberal media of the the lecture porn that we've talked about before the Aaron Sorkin award show speech we look John Oliver Samantha B I mean, I, yeah, yeah, fine. I'll put those in the. I, I love all these. I love all these people. Right? Yeah, because so. and that's the thing. I love John Oliver. Well, I, the only reason I'm hesitant to put those in the same box because they're actually journalists and they do research and they actually use facts as opposed to I'm Meryl Streep and I'm right because right. I'm more evolved because I'm Meryl Streep. You know what I mean? Because I feel like there's an expertise difference there. But beside the point, I think that, you know, there is an undercurrent of I'm better and that's why my politics are right. I'm more ethical than you. And so when a Harvey Weinstein story, there's this big sort of aha. And it's a little bit deserved because there is an undercurrent of that in the liberal media. Um that bugs me too. Look, I can't watch Aaron Sorkin programming at all anymore. I can barely go back and watch The West Wing because there is this this we're better than you. Let's just all acknowledge it. It is there. We're we're right because we're smarter. And we're more logical and we're more ethical. Don't you can't you see that? And so when these stories break, there's just this in and that's why they trot Bill Clinton out all the time is because, see, you're hypocrites. You have these um, unethical behaviors right under your nose. Okay, And you see this. I think that the liberal base is absolutely right to feel outraged over the hypocrisy of a man who trotted out the Ten Commandments and Christianity and religion as his fuel for his I'm right, I'm better, I'm more ethical to then be caught or apparently not caught for decades dating teenage girls. So it's, you know, maybe the solution here is for all of us to stop acting like our politics makes us better people. There's a lot of things that make you a better person, but I'm not really sure the party you belong to is one of them. And we need deeper, stronger foundations in, oh, I don't know, let me just shoot for the moon here, maybe ethics we can all share together despite our party so that we're not constantly catching each other in these hypocritical stances and acting like, aha, you're really not better than me. See, I told you so. Aha, you're not better than me. I told you so. Like, it's just so stupid, especially with something like misogyny and sexual assault which every woman, well, 
most women, no matter their party, will tell you is rampant. So it's just, you know, both sides do it. I don't think it helps anything. Maybe we could all just stop. There's this poem that I love by David Budbill that I'm sure I've talked about on the podcast before. It's called The Three Things. I think it's called The Three Things, or maybe it's The Three Goals. So he says, the first goal is to see something for what it is by itself. No symbolism, please. And then the second goal is to see the thing as part of all other things. And I think he says something like, in this regard, a little wine helps. And the third goal is to grasp both the particular and the universal simultaneously. And he ends with, call me when you get it, something like that. And I think a problem in our politics is that we want to skip to number two. We want to skip to what does Roy Moore mean in terms of my partisan talking points and my relationship with the other party and ultimately my superiority and rightness, as you just described, Sarah. But the first thing is to see the thing in and, for, in and of itself with no symbolism. And we're skipping that with Roy Moore. We need to just look at Roy Moore and these allegations, which are corroborated and substantiated. We don't need to have a criminal trial to, as human beings and voters, say, not good enough for the United States Senate. Later, perhaps we can discuss that as part of the fabric of our entire political state. But we need to not skip step one. And I'm really frustrated by all the discussion about how if these are true, if this is proven, there's a presumption of innocence. No, there's a presumption of innocence when we are about to deprive someone of their liberty in the form of incarceration or other criminal sanctions. Every person running for office is not entitled to a presumption of innocence. Sean Hannity protecting this guy all day and losing sponsors is not entitled to a presumption of innocence. We can still use our brains and form opinions based on the best evidence that's before us. And the Washington Post did a bang up job making sure that this was a corroborated story before putting it out into the public sphere. So I just I wish that we could back up and take step one and just say, I don't need to go directly to Bill Clinton and Juanita Broderick, and whatever else, I'm just going to look at Roy Moore for what Roy Moore is and make a decision that I can't support someone who made these kinds of choices for the United States Senate. That doesn't seem hard to me. Okay, just to push back ever so slightly, though, I totally, like, when you first started, I was like, yes, that's so right. Of course he doesn't get a presumption of innocence because we're depriving him of his liberty. But is there, because there is this sort of like, I'm pr- like the worst thing you could do is damage my campaign, which speaks to like a certain political privilege that's really obnoxious. But at the same time, I don't want to discount the thousands of Alabamans who voted for him in the primary. So how, what does that come in? How does that come into play? Those thousands of Alabamans didn't have this information. True. True, true. I mean, it doesn't seem hard to me. You're right. They didn't have this information. They had a lot of information that I would view as disqualifying anyway. And okay, they decided differently than I would. I'll respect that. He's their nominee. They didn't have this information, though. And he, look, he can still run. Yeah, the reactions of particularly conservative Republicans within the party in Alabama 
is either like wait and see, and I kind of want to be like, uh, for what? Right. Um, or double down, which is truly appalling. And I, yeah, and I posted this graph on our Facebook page and Twitter about how evangelicals, like the skyrocketing acceptance of quote unquote immoral acts from like when it was Bill Clinton to now when it's Republicans doing things that we're, the Bible's supposed to tell us is wrong. And again, it's just, I think that it's interesting when, I don't remember if it was in this article or another article I read that was basically like, when party, like being a part of the team is more, you're you're a part of, you're a Republican because you're on the team, not because you disagree with all the policies or you agree with all the policies. It's not a policy thing. It's an emotion thing, which you talk a lot about. And so you're willing to allow almost anything to protect your team, right? I mean, if if politics has become a team sport, this isn't surprising if you see what happens in sports. Like, oh, I don't know, Penn State and the allowing of a, child molestation for decades so we're we're ready to allow all manner of nastiness to protect our team basically i think there are a few things to unpack about religion and roy moore one is this trend in people who formerly formerly were railing against bill clinton and the things that he did that that i do think are terrible i mean let me just be clear about that i I have an opinion about Bill Clinton. It is a very negative opinion. Uh, It is not born of right-wing conspiracy. It is that I think he abused his power and views women as objects. And despite what I believe is a loving relationship with Hillary Clinton has has a problem. Okay. Wait, time out. I got to say one thing real quick because before I forget that it's totally and then back to evangelicals and religion. Steve Bannon on the New York Times talking about how Mueller's investigation needs to be limited in scope in the face of freaking an investigation that started in Whitewater and ended up with a blowjob made my head explode. Sorry. Agreed. What you're saying. Agreed. I need to get that off my chest really badly. 100% agreed. And while we're doing the get off my chest bit, I want to say, New York Times, stop giving this dude a forum. I don't want to see his name in my podcast feed or my news feed ever again. This is completely unnecessary. Ugh. Okay, so back to evangelicals. The same people who found Bill Clinton intolerable because of these issues, now having, what, greater space for forgiveness around them, I fully understand why a non-religious person would look at that and feel validated in everything they've ever thought about religion. I fully understand how we are contributing to a level of cynicism that is pervasive and that is going to become more so because the religious community has lost its grounding around politics. And this is something that you and I spend a lot of time thinking and talking about in connection with our book. So I think that's one discussion that needs to happen, that that neither of those things were right. It was unhelpful for the religious right to villainize Bill Clinton, unhelpful politically and also inconsistent with mm. the principles underlying my faith. It is also unhelpful politically and inconsistent with the principles underlying my faith for the religious right to now say, oh, Trump gets a pass because he sounds like he's, you know, telling the truth. He's and on our team. That's why. Because he's on our team. That's one issue. A second issue, I think, with religion and Roy Moore that needs to be thought through is the fact that there are religious traditions in which young women are 
thought of as marrying material at a point in life when they are incapable of consenting to that. And most of us feel very uncomfortable with that idea. And we need to grapple with that. You mean the fact that Joseph and Mary were so um, different in ages doesn't make you feel better? Oh, my God. I When women were property. Property. Right. Property. And so we need to have a conversation about that. And thirdly, I thought there was a wonderful, uh, powerful editorial from Nancy French in the Washington Post. Nancy French is a conservative writer. Um, she's a very interesting writer, I think. And her husband is David French of the National Review, who was floated to be a presidential contender for like half a second. I think Nancy French is far more interesting of the two of them. So she is a survivor of abuse and was abused, as she lays out in this Washington Post editorial, by her pastor. Mm. And she wrote about how damaging it was to her psyche for that to have happened. And how there was a part of her as a very young girl when her pastor kissed her who felt that that felt special. Mm. And that creates this situation where you're confused about what consent is and it and it's just very damaging all the way down the road. She does an excellent job talking about that. And she said that when she looks at Roy Moore, who claims to be God's warrior, she thinks the scripture he really needed to read wasn't one of the Ten Commandments he so desperately wanted to hang in the state courthouse. It was Luke 17, too, which warns it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And mm. the way she talks about the long-term effects of sexual assault and harassment and abuse on victims is really, really good. And I think just required reading for anyone connected with churches right now. So, oh, so good. there's so much around religion and Roy Moore to say and to think about. And it's, to me, a literal come to Jesus moment, like where we, <laughs> we really need to deal with these issues. So I want to talk about another aspect of religion and um, the current events really quickly before we move on to Trump and Asia, which is the um, Washington Post had an article on the community in Sutherland Springs. And they're leaning very heavily on their faith in response to the mass shooting um, two I guess it was two weeks ago or a week ago. And it brought back some very intense memories for me because there was actually a lot of coverage very similar in our community after the shooting at my high school in 1997. So the day after the shooting, we returned to school, and I spent all day making posters that I hung in the library window, many of which said, we forgive you because God forgave us. I was very um, heavily involved in the Evangelical Baptist Church at the time. So I also went on um, ABC News and was interviewed with two of my classmates with our Bibles in our laps about how important it was to... Um, forgive Michael Carneal, who was the shooter at my high school, and to lean heavily on our faith to move forward. And I can feel, um, not necessarily in the writer's um, voice within the article, but I know that some people are going to roll their eyes at that reaction. And what I wanted to say was that for all the flaws in my evangelical upbringing, and there were many, the strength that faith provides people in times of crisis and 
the emphasis on forgiving someone has served me very well in my life. And I'm not sorry about that part. And it just, I think that it's easy in the face of conversations surrounding someone like Roy Moore for religion just to become, well, not religion, but particularly for people's faith um, to become a political volleyball. And I would just encourage um, everyone to give grace to the people in Sutherland Springs. And if they are reacting in a way that you would not, that's okay. And faith provides a lot of comfort for people. And I would like a lot of political righteous fury um, surrounding mass shootings. But at the same time, um, I'm not going to scoff at someone leaning heavily on their faith in the face of something as awful and tragic as what happened in that church. And I think it's really beautiful. And um, I just, I, because of my own personal experiences after the shooting at my high school, I just wanted to say that. I really appreciate that, Sarah. I think something that I find myself wanting to say all the time is these things aren't exclusive of each other. You aren't saying by leaning on your faith that you also don't think anything needs to be done in the world. At its best, faith propels us to action. And so I I wish that people who are always critical of thoughts and prayers, and I understand why they are, and we've talked about that before, um, could see that in many of us, thoughts and prayers are step one and step two is, okay, now what am I called to do from here? So I understand why people see religion as a caricature, and I think many people of faith aren't helping with that. But I think that's because we're stuck in a pretty shallow understanding of faith, and that Mm. as that understanding deepens, we come around much more to places that people with secular worldviews would value as well. All right, after that um, emotional really important conversation how would you like to transition to president trump and his trip to asia there isn't a great segue to be honest (laughs) so i really appreciated I, i went to the bbc because sometimes american media drives me nuts and i feel that the bbc does a better job and, the, and I was thinking, I don't know what to say substantively about this trip, because all I have read are the president's tweets, and I've seen the videos of him saying, oh my gosh, look at how they greeted me in China, like a rock star. And I, I wanted to see, like, what actually happened here? And the BBC, I think, summed it up pretty well. They said, in a foreign land, it is clear that if you treat him, meaning the president, like royalty, he will behave like a polite guest. He has steered clear of nasty, uncomfortable things like human rights and democracy. And I think that's it, right? He had an opportunity to talk about lots of difficult things with leaders in Asia and didn't do that. He gave a very bombastic speech at the APEC summit where he kind of vaguely talked about how America isn't going to be taken advantage of anymore. But then he went to China and said, President Xi is amazing. He's very well respected by his people. He's so smart. We're going to be great friends. And then when President Xi spoke at the 
APEC summit, here's what the BBC said about him. He talked of the future of innovation, technology, climate change, and a vision of the region moving forward together in the past, the very talking points that might have been expected of a U.S. president. That Mm. perhaps is the flaw of America first. It may be a pragmatic transactional approach to foreign policy. There is no time wasted on trying to impart American values or improve societies. It's all about the deal. But that allows others to assume the leadership role. And for many in this region, the concern is that that can only mean a more dominant, self-confident, even arrogant China. Here's the thing. People voted for Donald Trump because they don't care about human rights. And I don't mean that they're bad people and they don't care about the suffering of other human beings. But I honestly think there is a huge portion of at least the voting public who believes we have spent too much time worrying about how treated people are treated in other countries and not worrying about Americans. And we really need to, you know... Cozy up to people like Duarte, who murders addicts in the street, um, as long as it gets us a better economic deal. And I hate to sound harsh, but I just, I don't know any other takeaway. And again, I don't think it's because Americans are less caring individually, but I think for better or for worse, our politics have become, we care about ourselves, we care about getting the best deal, you want to abuse people, we don't care, we're worried about America. I mean, what else does America first mean if it doesn't mean that? I'm very concerned that countries um, are negotiating the Trans-Pacific Partnership without the United States, that those negotiations are progressing along, that lots of provisions that the United States had initially requested be included are being discarded now so that the deal can keep moving forward. Because there is always a layer of national security wrapped up in trade agreements as well. It's not just about trade. And the other thing that I think is so strange about the sort of isolationism on American economics, all the tax breaks in the world aren't going to get our economy moving again if we shut ourselves off from international partnerships. Okay, can I take another minute to allow my righteous fury at Stephen Bannon to bubble up again? You know what? Many people listen to Pantsy Politics for your righteous fury, so have... Oh my God, because again, he's the face of this, and... Okay, I was thinking uh, this is also relevant to our tax conversation. I understand that wages are stagnant. I also agree that this is a huge problem, but it is not at least solely or even predominantly because of illegal immigration or foreign workers, a.k.a. trade deals. It is because of automation and technology. Why do you pretend that doesn't exist? It drives me crazy. As if, you know, you tear up NAFTA and all of a sudden our technological economy is going to go back to an industrial economy. It's so infuriating to me that we, you know, we're going to have big trade deals and all this trade, 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 trade. Like, I'm just not. Sorry. Well, let's put a pin in that because we'll come back to it with our tax conversation. The other thing we should say before we move on is that the president had this um, widely publicized, candid moment with reporters in which he said that he believes President Putin when Putin says that he did not interfere in the U.S. elections. And he later had to walk those comments back to say, oh, right. The current people in our intelligence community know what they're doing, unlike Clapper, Brennan, and Comey, who he directly insulted on Veterans Day. And I do agree that there was some meddling, but 
I also believe that, you know, Putin believes he didn't do it. And so that's what he believes. I'm guessing there's righteous fury for that as well. Yeah, I was kind of, well, actually, I was just sort of surprised because he doesn't walk things back very often. He usually just doubles down. Honestly, that was my first reaction was like, huh, you can do that. Interesting. That's a, that's a tool in your toolbox. Could you use it more often? Um, also, I don't believe you. But again, helpful that you are capable of walking back an incredibly harmful remark like I, I believe Putin over intelligence agencies. You know, for me, the story of this Asia trip is how easily manipulated Donald Trump is. I was reading this piece in Politico magazine about how the North Koreans are really trying to discern whether he is actually crazy or if this is all some long game that he's playing. And I have that question sometimes, too. And I have decided, I think, that it that it is what it seems to be, that it is that he is enormously insecure, that he believes that all of the fanfare greeting him means that he's hugely popular. And that means that the United States is once again respected in the world. And I don't think he understands how significantly he is going to be played by all of these foreign leaders, how significantly he is being played. I don't think he understands how incredibly damaging it is to the fragile foreign policy foreign policy infrastructure when he calls Kim Jong-un short and fat on Twitter. I don't think he understands how much all of this means and how many layers of meaning surround everything that he does. I mean, and I don't... Do you think that he... I mean, I have to believe that, you know, when he's expanding his real estate empire all over the world... We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Pansy. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. There's some sort of like diplomacy at work. Like he, ha- I don't, how could he be so ignorant to that? I don't know that to it's... To the complexity of that. I don't know that it's ignorance. I think it is more... Because I do think he is an intelligent person who has who's had a lot of success. I think he knows how to work a certain type of system. Mm. And he is in a world of very different systems than the ones that he's comfortable in. And he doesn't have the self-awareness to recognize. I was really good at that. Yeah. This is something different. Different. Because he can't acknowledge like, well, because we're we're missing the basic first step, which is I'm not good at this. Why? Because he's never going to acknowledge he's not good at something. Right. Right. Okay. Well, let's okay, compliment yeah. the other side because we've, that was a very negative first block of the show today. <laughs> <laughs> let's extract ourselves from it. Oh, I'm sure tax reform is going to be so much more positive. <laughs> so who's on your mind this week? Um, I'm going to compliment the governor of Kentucky, Matt Bevin. Um, recently, the Kentucky State House was rocked with its own sexual harassment and assault scandal, which seems to be um, flowing across the nation in state houses in California, Florida. But Kentucky's Speaker of the House, who is very vital to upcoming pension reform bills that the governor wants to pass, was accused of sexual harassment. And um, Governor Bevin did not mince words. He said um, accusations of sexual harassment are serious and a problem. And if the person has done this, they should resign, period. Like he just he was very um, blunt and didn't do a lot of if these prove to be true kind of dancing. Yeah, I was really proud of that, too. I wanted to compliment Sabrina Cervantes, who is a legislator in California. She ran for the California legislature when she was 29 as a Democrat, and she turned a red district purple, as the headlines like to say. She's done a great job, it sounds like, advocating for her district. The governor of California summoned her to his office to ask her to vote for a tax increase. She decided to vote for it, but in the process extracted like half a billion dollars to come back to her district in infrastructure improvements. She's taken a lot of difficult votes. Many she has crossed the aisle to vote on and just sounds like somebody who's working hard and doing all the right things and a great representative for young women that you can do this and you can be really freaking good at it right out of the gate. So... Hooray, Sabrina Cervantes. Okay, up next we are going to talk about 
Republican efforts to cut taxes for some people. (laughs) So, Sarah, I put out a primer this weekend about the budget process. And at the end of the primer, I shared some observations from a Forbes writer that Republicans have essentially decided that the budget is no longer about the budget. It's just about creating an opportunity to do substantive legislation that they want to do without having to get 60 votes on it. And that is certainly what's happened with tax reform. I was a little um, shocked by your your Twitter rant. You seemed very frustrated. I am very frustrated. I think that... Well, let me say this. When I think about the controversy in America over taxes and really the the larger controversy about uh, income inequality and about the role of the federal government, I think one of the best things that we could do to start to move in one another's directions toward compromise is to have greater transparency and greater seriousness about the budget. There is a timeline spelled out by statutes on what this process is supposed to look like, and it has become a joke because it's Mm -hmm. never adhered to. And I think getting to that process, tweaking that process, providing greater opportunity for public understanding of what's being done with our tax dollars would really help us have an elevated conversation about this issue. And instead, Republicans have taken it in exactly the opposite direction. I just feel like with regards to tax reform generally, like here's where I'm at. Okay, so I was listening to The Daily today, which did a really good breakdown of how this is basically still trickle-down economics, which started in the 80s with Ronald Reagan which is the idea that we will cut taxes for businesses, free up all this cash, they'll hire more people, they'll spend more money, and that trickles down to lower incomes. Okay, so if you look at basically any chart on income inequality, the the splitting between the top and the bottom really gets serious uh, right around the time in the 80s when they started cutting taxes and doing this trickle-down economics. And I was just thinking like, Where is the Make America Great Again baby boomer nostalgia for the tax system in the 50s and 60s? Because it was really different and we had much better income equality and job growth and wage growth in the 50s and the 60s and even into the 70s. So why can't we get nostalgia for that? Why can't we go back to that? Because this idea that we keep perpetuating, which I thought the guy on the Daily did such a good job. He was like, look, businesses have plenty of money. Do you think Apple isn't hiring people because they don't have enough money like that or isn't increasing wages because they don't have enough money? That's not the issue, y'all. Like, that's not what's happening. And, like, maybe the exact tax structure of the 50s and 60s in our technological economy is not the answer, and I'm not saying it is, but this idea that we're just going to keep cutting corporate tax rates and cutting taxes on the top 1% and it's all going to make our lives better, when are we going to give up on that? And when are we going to give up on that the only solution ever is to cut taxes? That's also really frustrating. I was thinking about this because um, Tiffany Haddish hosted SNL. Did you see her opening monologue? Yes, I did. 
I thought it was so charming and so wonderful. And one of the first things she said was, I was a foster child and I lived in a lot of group homes. And if you pay taxes from 1990 to like 1997, thank you, because they went to help me survive and I wouldn't be here otherwise. And I thought that was like such a wonderful thing to say because I I don't know. I just we have all these big problems that we need to pay attention to. And I'm not saying, look, I just like to think that all the tax money I pay never, ever go, never, ever a single penny of it went to Tom Price's private jets. Okay, like I just pretend that's not true. I just pretend every single cent that I personally pay in goes to foster children. It makes me sleep better at night. So I'm not saying that all the tax money is being spent well or that our budget is just perfectly where it needs to be. But the idea that especially the party who's supposed to be concerned about the budget deficit is just the only way we can do this is cut taxes at the top. It'll trickle down. is so infuriating. I have so many things to say about this. With respect to the budget... It bothers me that our tax system is pretty divorced from the needs of the country as expressed through the budget. Mm. We always talk about it in terms of what's fair to individual taxpayers. Well, the fairest thing to individual taxpayers is for the government to openly and honestly assess what it needs to run and to do the things we want it to do and then decide how to tax us. Now, we can't do that every single year because we have to have some stability and some predictability. But there does need to be a concerted effort to stop just layering on the budget. Hmm. And and that would, I think we could probably accomplish more with the same dollars if we spent some time really thinking about these things. I'm not su- suggesting that, you know, we need to pull the plug on 15 agencies we just need a thoughtful process. And I'm sure some of that's happening and we don't know it because it's buried in this process that Congress doesn't seem to take seriously. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want to say is that I think, and this is a hard thing to say, I think we have unrealistic expectations for the rate of growth in our economy and for the rate mm. of wages increasing in our economy. And here's how I've been thinking about this. I frequently compliment you, Sarah, for having this emotional elasticity. So you can, as you have done already today, one second be in a real sincere state of grief and then move on to laughing and joking and being just fine. And I truly admire that because I can't do it. I think that our economy, like we have an emotional aspect of our economy that is not very elastic. So I think about my grandmother who was influenced by Depression-era thinking, and even during the economic booms of our childhood, she would not throw away a well-used piece of aluminum foil because she was influenced so significantly by the Depression that all of her decisions for the rest of her life had that shadow over them. And if we can't see that that has happened to us about 2008... And understand that we're not going to say, oh, our taxes have been cut. Let's spend all this money. We're not going to do that. And thank goodness, P.S. Yeah, I mean, I like, think I think I that's, don't want us to do that. <laughs> right. You know, th- there <laughs> people who experienced 2008 at a variety of points in life are going to be more financially conservative businesses are still, many businesses are still operating in 2008 mode. 
Yes, they're making record profits, but they're keeping a lot of those profits or reinvesting them in the business because they worry that the bottom could fall out at any time. And it could, right? That's to your point about how taxes aren't the only decision-making point in terms of when people invest. You don't just look at the corporate tax rate when you're making a decision about whether to hire people or not. And one Mm. thing that Congress ought to get real clear about is the decision to hire is often motivated by health care. And having all this instability around health care makes it even less likely that businesses are going to go on hiring sprees, even if their tax rates come down. So I just think that there is so much framing. Look, I understand the theory of supply-side economics, and I understand in theory that it makes sense, but there is zero evidence supporting that this is going to do what Republicans say it's going to do. So even if I originated that theory on my own, I need to have the humility to say nothing tells us that this is going to work. So it is a massive gamble with our future to increase the deficit by over a trillion dollars, hoping that this gamble pays off. And I think that's really irresponsible. And as a conservative, I don't understand mortgaging the future even more to take this kind of gamble when the economy is steadily growing along. And I don't believe that we can have another big boom until we shed some of the emotional baggage from 2008. Also, It's not just that there's no evidence that it will work and it's a gamble. There's lots of evidence that it won't work because we've been doing it from the 80s and income equality has only grown. So, you know, maybe we could try something different. And another righteous anger break, the whole thing about health care. I was reading today about because I do think it's relevant to our economy and taxes, like you said, even just beyond whether or not employees are going to hire, but also just what the average family can afford, is that Donald Trump has been slowly, the Trump administration, not him personally, undermining all the Obamacare focus um, that does try to get to what we talk about all the time, which is it's not just the cost of health insurance, it's the cost of health care generally, and which is based on a fee-for-service, which is problematic, obviously. If someone's getting paid on a fee-for-service basis, then... The motivation is to have more service. So there's all these Obamacare administrative, and especially within um, Medicaid, which the rest of the insurance companies usually follow, that tries to get it quality of care instead of just fee for service. And they're undoing them. I'm like the one thing that like we're trying to slowly chip away at the actual cost of care, and they're undoing them. I think we're stuck. You know, I look at Paul Ryan, who I think sincerely believes, Now, I mean, you know, I can feel the eyes rolling. Yeah, I I don't think he sincerely believes anything anymore. I used to be with you on this train. I'm off the train. I'm off the Paul Ryan is a sincere guy. I just disagree with train. I'm off the train. Well, I'm mostly off the Paul Ryan is a sincere guy train. But I do think he believes that the Reagan approach to the economy is the right approach to the economy. So that's based on what? Right. And that's the question. I think he has believed that for so long. We need to take a fresh look at this in 2017. We just do. I was having oh a God, conversation on Twitter with one of our listeners. I think Oliver is in New Zealand about whether a free market or a welfare state is better at restraining abusive power. And I said, look, my belief has always been that it's pick your poison because money and power both lead to abuse. And 
my perspective has always been that a free market can correct more quickly than power abused by the state. I am coming back to the drawing board to assess that in light of two things. One, an increasingly authoritarian leader in the United States, which reinforces my belief in restraining federal power, but also in light of the technologies being developed by Facebook, Twitter, Google, and Amazon that make me wonder if the free market can even regulate itself anymore to any extent. I've always thought we needed both. We need the state and we need the market. But when I think about, I I posted a TED Talk on our social media feeds this weekend about how we're creating dystopia just to get people to click on ads. And the speaker in that TED Talk spoke about how the programming being created right now, it's not programming anymore. We are growing intelligence. And you Mm. have these programmers who have been able to create algorithms that predict whether someone is about to go into a manic state based on their computer use, and they have no idea why this works. The programmers themselves do not understand why they were able to create something that is so predictive of human behavior. And so when I look at those kind of technological advancements, it causes me to say, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Perhaps my understanding of the world in the 1980s needs to be adjusted based on where we are today. And that's what I would say to people who sincerely believe in supply-side economics. I hear you that growth is sluggish. I hear you that wages are stagnant. I hear you that you want to try something new, but you're not trying something new. You're trying something old in a very new time. I want taxes to come down overall too, but I also want our deficit to come down over time. I want our budget to make sense. And that's not being accomplished with this plan. Agreed. And here's what else really bothers me about, I feel like everything I read about tax reform is we are reforming the system. Also, this is going to expire in a year. We're making all these great changes to this deduction, to this deduction, to this corporate tax rate. By the way, it expires in a year. Um, Like, what what the hell? I mean, how are you making any big reforms if everything expires? What are we doing? What are we even doing? Except for, it sounds like, just trying to get something accomplished so you get reelected. And I wonder if politically this is going to work out well either, because there is some Mm -hmm. very false advertising going on around this. So Congress's Joint Committee on Taxation has released a report saying that in addition to adding nearly a trillion and a half dollars to the debt, families earning between $20,000 and $40,000 a year and between 200000 and 500000 a year could see an increase in their taxes in 2023 and beyond because of this plan. And the answer to that from House Republicans is, no, 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 but they're going yeah, to get the benefits of businesses paying more and hiring more people and investing in the United States. I don't know about that. And our listener, Carrie, who's in Virginia, pointed out that the tax plan could be one explanation for... Republican losses and Democratic victories in Virginia, because you've got a lot of people in that 200 to 500 K mm-hmm. range who the rest of the country thinks must be very wealthy, but the cost of living is very high there. And so those folks are living, you know, kind of the, the middle class, every dollar matters lifestyle. And they're worried that their taxes are going to go up under this tax plan. Yeah, there was a really excellent article in the Washington Post I'll put in the show notes about 
um, the impact. They went to, um, oh, Alpharetta, I think. No, maybe it was. It was a Atlanta suburb. I can't remember the name of it right now. Wherever um, the big special election happened, it's Tom Bryce's district. And they were talking about just that. Like, we know we seem like we make a lot of money, but we are funding, you know, after big mortgages in a high cost of living area and health care and college savings and retirement savings and one or two vacations, whatever, like there's not much left. And if you get at these deductions that the, this particular class of people depend on, student loan interest deductions, mortgage interest deductions, state and local tax deductions, it could have a big impact. The last point that I wanted to talk about with this is that I think this seems inconsistent with the populist vision. So circling back to the Asia trip and being left out of trade deals, an argument for lowering the corporate tax rate is to encourage foreign investment in the United States. And we've talked before about how problematic some foreign investment in the United States is and also about how important it is to the American economy. If we don't like globalism, and it's America first in this kind of isolationist way, isn't it inconsistent with the kind of reason for being of this tax plan to encourage more foreign investment in the United States? Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, 
It could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Are you suggesting that the populist rhetoric was a craven attempt to... Um, secure an electoral strategy and not a heartfelt vision for America's future. That's what I'm coming to. Yes. Mm-hmm. Here's this. Here's the, here's the, here's the just, you know, one last Steve Bannon bomb I'll throw into the conversation. I mean, I think that Steve Bannon sincerely believes that globalism, I mean, like there's all this backstory to his dad who sort of got the, you know, worked his all his life for the plant, you know, that sort of, um, What's the Arthur Miller play? Death of a Salesman. Mm-hmm. Sort of sort of thing. I think he sincerely believes that, but he just has all the facts wrong. Like, not to mention that he, there is definitely sort of globalist economic threads and successes and investments running through his own personal investment profile. But that aside... Like, I, I think he believes it. He's just it's and I think this is true of the populist sort of rhetoric surrounding this. Like you sort of have the 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 emotion, I believe, is sincere. It's just your entire logic structure that it's built on is incorrect. <laughs> like I said, it's not. Glo- I mean, yes, in a way, globalism was impactful. That's the understatement of the century. But, like, it wasn't foreign workers. It was robots, y'all. It was robots. Mm. So I don't want to leave this without offering some kind of solution. I do think that we are due for tax reform. It's been about 30 years. I think it is a good time to look at the tax code. I think the tax code is too complicated. I think we need to have a real discussion as Americans about our budget and about whether we want to use the tax code as significantly as we do to influence people's behavior and choices. That leads to a lot of bad places. So let's have that conversation. My suggestion is to just try this in regular order and have public hearings and work on a bipartisan basis on these issues. And you know what? If you think lowering the tax rate is going to bring additional investment into the United States, let's hold public hearings and hear companies commit to that. Yes, I will build 10 factories here in America tomorrow if the tax rate comes down to 15%. Let's put people on record and hold them accountable for spending that money. I mean, there is a way to do this that secures so much more confidence in the process. And then if it doesn't work, we can revisit it. But this way, 
really diminishes any shreds of faith I had left in the idea that the Republican Party stands for a federal government that operates constitutionally and lawfully and with respect for process. Well, I think that that I think you've hit the nail on the head, though. I don't think I think the Republican Party of the last. I mean, really, it started. Let's be honest. It started with Reagan. It wasn't about we want to build a better government that is more faithful to American ideas. It was government's the problem. Government's the problem. Tear it down. Tear it down. Government's the problem. And I keep thinking, you know, about what Ezra Klein said once, which was, Mitch McConnell and the political conservative elite, um, to varying degrees of sincerity, started to play to the populist ideologues. And I think, you know, for a long time, I thought that the rise of the Tea Party was really just about racism in response to Barack Obama. But I do think a huge part of it was we thought we were electing sort of a populist. We're unhappy with our economic lot in life. Um, True, we're blaming all the wrong people, but George W. Bush was at least supposed to be a Republican that helped it, and he did all the things he wasn't supposed to, that conservatives aren't supposed to. And so I think that many of the elite played to that narrative, knowing that they didn't really mean it, that they didn't really want to tear the government down because they were the government. And you're just finally getting a clash and an uprising of... No, you've been telling us for decades that government is the problem and we need to burn it to the ground and we're ready to burn it to the ground. And if we have to take you with us, we will. I mean, I feel like that's what this is. Like, of course, they don't want to build a better process that gives faith in the government because they've been using um, distrust in the government as electoral strategy for three freaking decades. So, you know, I, I, I like I said, I just think that that the, the you know, Everything's coming home to roost with regards to government's a problem, government's a problem, government's a problem, especially for people like Mitch McConnell. And what I would ask of you and my Democratic progressive friends, for those of us who are somewhere in between, right, who say government can be a problem, government has some problems, Let's mm-hmm. all get together and acknowledge what those are and work through them. And they're not just Republicans. Just you That's know, right. And so let's, side note. let's get together and say the reason we were susceptible to that narrative is because there are some issues. So let's address those issues. Let's work through it. And I honestly believe that just saying, hey, for the next year, let's commit to go through this budgeting process in a really serious way. In fact, you want to make that your top priority? Do it. Make that your top priority. But let's spend a year on this problem instead of rushing to get something done by Christmas because you want to say you did. Mm-hmm. Well, next up, we're going to talk about what is on our mind outside of politics. What are you thinking about, Sarah? I'm finally not talk, thinking about moving every second of every day. We're like moved in. We're pretty much settled. Got some things out there. I'm not saying it's everything is done. But I found some time to watch some television. And I've been working my way through the deuce on HBO. And it is so good. It's pretty. It's David Simon, who is the producer of The Wire. I'm assuming you've never watched The Wire. I've seen one episode of The Wire. 
um, you really would like it. I know you don't believe me and you don't want to watch depressing TV, but like it's like TV for people who really want to take a nuanced look at like inner city problems. Like it's a very new his his writing is very nuanced. Let's put it that way. So the wire's amazing. So he has a new show called The Deuce, which is about. Um, I mean. I guess primarily it's really about the sex industry in 1970s New York City. So first of all, I love grimy 70s, 80s New York shows like Working Girl. Um, I really wish Mad Men would have kept going right into the 70s when things started getting real sketchy in New York. I just I'm just into it. I can't really explain why. So um, this show is about it follows several prostitutes and their pimps. It follows some of the cops. It follows a bartender, James Bud. And his twin brother, both played by James Franco. My husband looked up at one point and was like, why are there two James Francos on the screen? Um, But Maggie Gyllenhaal is um, a prostitute on the show. And, man, I wish I could do anything half as good as Maggie Gyllenhaal does every role she ever touches. She is so phenomenal on the show. And it's got a lot of female writers and a lot, which I think in in all-male hands, a show about prostitutes would be super problematic. But... um, these female writers and the, I think there's a, maybe a female showrunner. I'm not sure, but like they're doing such a good job. It's so well done. Um, it's pretty gritty and there's lots of violence and a whole lot of sex, but obviously it's a show about prostitutes, but man, it's good. It's really good. Okay. On a totally different note. From prostitutes to school start times. That's right. I was reading this article in the Atlantic about school start times and how there's all this economic Uh, behavioral economic data suggesting that outcomes improve when school starts at 8.30 or later. It improves things like how many traffic accidents happen. It improves performance. Like, there are lots of reasons to start school later, but that's not what I wanted to talk about. So they're in, in this article, they're talking about how we've known this forever, it's widely accepted, but nobody wants to do it because the status quo is such a powerful force. And that one thing that would help is starting to talk about later times as the norm and earlier times as an aberration because Mm -hmm. of how social pressure works in human decision making. And this this just so jumped out at me. It says one odd example. According to a study, hotel guests who are told that past guests staying in their specific room reuse their towels are more likely to choose to reuse than those who are simply told that guests in the same hotel have done it. Uh-uh. What? I think that is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, they do this stuff on, like, utility bills, the Nest. The, nothing motivates me more than, like, my Nest ranking among other Nest users in my area. You know, like, if your neighbors do it, you do it. Yeah, that shit works. I am just blown away by the idea that being told that someone who stayed in this room did it is more influential than someone who stayed in this hotel. I think that's so interesting. I just had a thought process. Don't get mad at me. It's about our previous segment. But I think it's relevant. It's like behavioral economics has not been applied in tax policy. It's like tax policy is still built on this completely false notion that people make logical decisions. I don't know, ever. But particularly with regards to money. Like, we haven't, like, taken this awesome insight that we have about behavioral economics and applied it to tax policy yet. I totally mm-hmm. agree. That That's what I was trying to say about my grandmother and the aluminum foil. Like, we're, yeah. we're pretending that people are going to just adjust back and forth, back and forth to these economic Because they're making incentives. logical decisions. Right. But they're making emotional decisions. No, of course not. So I don't know. I thought that was fascinating. It's something I'm going to be chewing on all week. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics, where I got a lot of righteous anger off my chest, and I feel much 
better. Until Friday, we'll be sharing feedback and additional news with all of you. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George. You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Pantsuit Politics theme music. 